Hi, I'm Claudia and you're listening to The Brain and Brand Show, where you'll hear science and inspiration from guests like neuroscientist Dr. Tara Swart. Hi guys, welcome back to The Brain and Brand Show. Today I bring you neuroscientist Dr. Tara Swart to offer you seven simple brain power tips to ensure you keep your goals and dreams on track for the year. In my ongoing mission to simplify neuroscience and behavioral science by bringing you content you can use to boost your brain and at the same time offer you insights and conversations about how we make decisions and behave on a deeper unconscious level. I want to help you increase your knowledge about how yours and other people's brains work so you can get more out of yourself and others. Dr. Tara Swart, a favorite on the show, is the author of the international bestseller, The Source, and a professor at MIT Sloan's School of Business in Boston, Massachusetts. And she's now launched an additional program for professionals at MIT Leadership Center, which you can check out online. And I'll share those details in the show notes. But before you continue, please take a moment to rate the show and leave a comment. It makes a difference to Apple and Spotify's promotional process for the show, and it would mean a lot to me. Now, here are seven simple tips to help you get more out of your brain in 2021. Enjoy. So today we're going to focus on how neuroscience and how it can help a leader or an influencer or anyone who is sort of in a high pressure environment who is looking to create an edge and to sustain their creative edge that promotes them. Today's show is really dedicated to them. Our brain and our body are constantly affecting each other. <clears throat> this seems obvious in a way, but most of the people I see who are the leaders and the influencers they don't live in the way that shows that they're really understanding the effect of your brain on your body and vice versa. So, you know, just things like if you're cold, if you're hungry, if you're tired, if you're jet lagged, that affects the way that you think. And of course, that affects your ability as a leader. And equally, if you're really stressed or even if you're feeling like overconfident or just very confident, that changes the nerves and hormones activity in your body. So understanding that from the beginning, I think, is really important. And then let's take that a little bit further, because I really like to talk about physical, mental, emotional and spiritual health or wealth. Now, all four of those categories affect each other. So if you're, you know, if you're physically fit and healthy, if you're thinking really well and you, you know, you're part of a community or a faith or something. So spiritually, you feel like you're, you know, in integrity with your values. But emotionally, let's say you're feeling um, stressed or lonely or bullied or whatever it is, that will come out in one of the other areas. If you suppress it, you'll end up becoming physically ill or you end up isolating yourself um, or your thinking will become very negative. So all four of those really affect each other. And you have to make sure that you know, you're looking at all four categories. So it's about holistic or integrated well-being. Got it. I just want to make sure that the listener is clear that what we're about to give you is pretty special. You teach these things, and people pay a lot of money to hear some of the things you're going to share. Am I right? That's true. And actually, that's one of the reasons that I really wanted to work with you and previously that I really wanted to write the book, because I started thinking this can change everybody's life. This can make everybody's life a little bit better. And what I say to the people that, you know, come to my classes or my workshops or get individual coaching from me is don't change one thing by 10 percent. Change 10 things by 1 percent and you'll get a much bigger overall benefit. 
they can hear directly from me what are those five, seven, ten things that you could change. And I sort of thought, you know, unless you're getting coaching or you're coming to these talks, what, it felt wrong that you shouldn't have access to this information. That's why I wrote the book. Um, Wonderful. But, you, you know, with you, I feel like there's an even greater reach to different types of people, but with the same information. Let's go through the first three of the tips. They're very physical. Okay. Um, one of them is nutrition, but I'd like to start with the one that I think is the most important. So the reason I put them in this order is because I thought, how long would it take you to die if you didn't do this thing? <laughs> that, oh, that's wow. how I worked out how important they are. So okay. actually the first three are sleep, nutrition, and hydration. Okay. Um, and we still don't really know why we spend so much of our lives sleeping, but we know that it's absolutely vital to our health and our well-being. And, um, you know, enough disrupted sleep and you start to not be able to function as a human and, and eventually you wouldn't be able to continue your life. So there's a couple of things about sleep, one short term and one long term. So if you have had disrupted sleep last night, then today you would be operating at work or in life with an apparent IQ loss of five to eight points. Oh, wow. Now, most people listening to this podlet would be able to do the day job, even though they're five to eight IQ points less than they normally are. But that's after one night's sleep. After four or five nights of bad sleep, you start to accumulate what we call sleep debt. And then you can't actually catch that up by sort of, you know, oversleeping at the weekend. So you start to get more permanent effects of, of disrupting your sleep. And I mean, these are all based on population norm studies. So it's not going to be correct for every single individual. But these statistical studies show that if you lose a whole night's sleep, then that group of people, that IQ drops by one standard deviation, which would take anyone with even a high IQ to below normal IQ. And, you know, you know that I travel a lot. I come to South Africa. I'm in the States at the moment, but I live in the UK. And when I'm really jet lagged, I literally can't deal with details, can't deal with numbers. I forget if I've replied to emails or not. You know, it's actually quite scary. Um, and I almost class jet lag as a mental illness because you're just, your brain isn't functioning normally. There are people who probably think there's something wrong with their mind because they can't remember things, etc. They may think they are, you know, dealing with sort of early dementia, and it could actually be sleep, sleep deprivation. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, in the short term, it could be. Um, it could be stress. So stress literally kills off neurons, particularly in the memory part of our brain. Okay. Um, but it's interesting that you picked up on dementia because um, the second thing that I was going to say about sleep is the longer term effects of regularly not getting enough sleep um, and there is there is um, scientific research that now shows a causal link between that and um, dementing diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's oh, so wow. I know what we believe is that the reason we have to sleep for seven to nine hours so most human brains like 98 99 percent of human brains need to sleep for seven to nine hours a night is because this very specialized cleansing process of the brain takes seven or eight hours. So you need to be lying down in bed, preferably on your side, to allow this glymphatic clearage of toxins from your brain. So there's a fluid system. I call it like the aqueduct system of the brain. And we used to think that 
fluid passively trickled through the brain for seven or eight hours, but actually it's like a forcible flushing of toxins out of your brain. And if that process is disrupted, then we see a buildup of things like protein plaques and beta amyloid tangles. And these are the pathology of, of things like Alzheimer's and other dementias. Um, when I was writing my book, they knew, you know, the science was saying that disrupted sleep over a long period of time is connected to that, but we can't say if it's the cause. But now the research has moved in the direction to say that it, it does cause those sorts of diseases to be more likely. So for a 21-year-old student who crams and spends the bulk of their student life having their sleep disrupted because of studying and working, are they shielded from it because of their youth, their vitality? <laughs> Is this more of a conversation for us older people? We've only come across this information very recently. But if I had known this 20 years ago, would I have done something differently? I mean, it's hard to say because you're studying hard, you're partying hard, your priorities are different. Um, but the, the soonest in your life that you know how important it is to get regular, undisrupted sleep, I would focus on making that happen. So I was a junior doctor in my 20s. I did shift work. I had lots of disrupted sleep. I still travel a lot. But whenever I can control it, I try to make sure that I get eight hours of good quality sleep. Got it. And disruptive sleep, if I wake up once in the middle of the night, is that considered disruptive? What is disruptive sleep? Yeah, so I think there's there's two answers to that. So one is very, you know, sort of personal. If you feel like, oh, no, I woke up because I had to go to the loo and now my sleep's ruined and it will take me hours to get back to sleep, then that's disruption. But if you just go to the bathroom, get back to bed, fall asleep again, that's not disruption. And I've, I've, I use a wearable technology to monitor my sleep from time to time. And I use it on my clients as well. It's a heart rate variability technology. And even when I'm jet lagged, occasionally when I wake up suddenly and then I fall back asleep again, it didn't show up as serious disruption. So it's, it's pretty, you know, it depends on you. It depends on the reason. Um, but if you switch all the lights on and start reading or watching TV or looking at screens with blue light, then you've disrupted your sleep. If you keep things dark, go back and lie down, maybe do some kind of, you know, um, relaxation practice, then it, it shouldn't be counted as disruptive. Okay, so um, the one I want to talk about next is nutrition. So Sorry, that's before, I, before you go to nutrition, I apologize. I just want to make mm, sure people are clear that this five to eight points you lose in IQ if you continue in sleep deprivation has very real consequences. There are very specific things you won't be able to do at the level by losing these five to eight points. Am I right? Well, you know, the five to eight points is just after one night of disrupted sleep. And, and it's, you know, your IQ doesn't change, but it's what you can do with it that changes. So it's just, I think five to eight points isn't really enough that it would make a, a noticeable difference to most people. But it's when you do that for four or five nights in a row that it comes to the point where it's the same as coming into work and saying, I'm absolutely drunk. Okay, so Monday, you start the week off, um, mm -hmm. and you're having disruptive sleep Monday through Thursday. On that Friday, mm. you're, you're close to drunk. Or... It's probably equivalent. There are studies that show it's the equivalent to certain levels of alcohol intoxication in terms of your mental function, yeah. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Point number two, nutrition. Okay, so um, 
I call it refueling, you know, almost like an athlete. And, and the thing about sleep is that, you know, our sort of um, national rugby teams and football teams, when they travel to compete, they know that there are some guys that can train the next day and some that have to rest for a day and then train. So we need to think about ourselves like that, both in terms of sleep and refueling or nutrition, because our brain only weighs two to three percent of our whole body weight. But it's a very energy hungry organ. Even when you're just at rest, like just, you know, not working too hard, it uses up 20 percent of the breakdown products of a healthy, balanced diet. When you're focusing or concentrating or thinking really hard or, you know, doing something a bit more demanding, like regulating your emotions, thinking flexibly or creatively, then it's using up to 30% of what you eat. So when you sat down for a meal, if you thought a quarter to a third of this is going to affect my thinking, not my physical body, what might you do differently? There are some obvious things that come from that, which is eat regularly. So your brain can't store the breakdown products of your diet. So it The breakdown products are glucose in a medical sense, but that doesn't mean refined sugar. So we don't want people to think that eating cookies or drinking sodas is a way of giving, you know, resources to your brain. It's (laughs) about eating healthily and regularly so that your brain has a good supply of what it needs when it needs it. Okay. So, for instance, I would never go to a coaching session with a client without eating something first. I, I feel like. This person is paying me to use my brain to help them. So I have to, I'm responsible for, you know, sort of walking there, getting a bit of oxygen going around my brain and body and having a snack if I haven't had a meal within in the last one and a half hours. Um, and we'll come on to hydration. So obviously also making sure that I've had enough water to drink. Um, so <coughs> it's about eating enough, eating regularly and eating the right food. So most people have a fairly good idea of what a healthy, you know, balanced diet is, but there are some particularly my favorite brain-friendly foods. Okay. Uh, um, salmon and other oily fish, eggs, avocado, nuts and seeds, and then just all the water-rich and oil-rich foods like vegetables, fruit, olives, um, and then there's one that's the absolute rocket fuel for your brain, which is coconut oil. Oh, wow. Why is this coconut oil so uh, effective? Um, coconut oil has what's called medium chain triglycerides, which are a form of fuel. So it's, it's a vegetable fat which provides fuel that the brain can take up directly without it having, be, having to be broken down by the liver. Um, and there's a study from Duke University in the States that shows that if you eat one teaspoonful of coconut oil, then your cognitive function, so your ability to think, improves for 20 minutes afterwards. So I just I just melt a spoonful of coconut oil into my cup of tea in the morning. Ah. Oh. Mm. Did you do that this morning? Because you sound sharp. Um, I didn't, because I'm traveling. I didn't bring a tub <laughs> of coconut oil with me, so I'm looking forward to going home. <laughs> okay. Great. Um, Have you heard about Bulletproof Coffee? No, I haven't. It's a particularly clean um, version of coffee that you drink with um, butter and coconut oil in it. Really? Yeah, look it up. um, So the the butter is like a fat that buffers the effect of the caffeine, so it lasts for longer. But 
the coconut oil is literally like rocket fuel for your brain. Is there a specific brand or website that we can go yeah, to? Yeah, Bulletproof Coffee is the brand. Okay. But um, in the UK, I, I co-designed a juice with a juice company, and we made it a more sort of natural, healthy version of that, which is with matcha green tea, um, cashew nut milk, coconut oil, chia seeds, um, and cucumber water. So it's sort of the same idea, you know, that there's, there's caffeine, but it's buffered by a fatty substance. This was a nut milk, and then it's also got the coconut oil in it. So you could make, you know, people could make a version of this at home. Wow. And, I, you know, one of the things that I'm fascinated by is how cultural and social dynamics impact diet. Yeah, so look, I think it's about everything in moderation. So when you're socializing, just, you know, go ahead and enjoy that braai and all the bad oil that it's cooked in. <laughs> um, no, I'm joking. Yeah, so, you know, the, the importance of positive social relationships is huge as well. Our sense of belonging is huge. Our, our need for belonging is huge. So absolutely enjoy that. When you're on your own and when you've got more choice and control of what you can eat, just try to eat as many of the brain-friendly foods as possible. So, you know, if I go out for a meal, I'm in New York at the moment. If I go out to a nice restaurant, I'll try to probably pick a salmon and something else. But, you know, I'll just enjoy myself. But at other times, when I can, I'll drink a green juice. I'll, you know, sort of make sure I'm getting enough fruit and vegetables and things like that. Now, you've asked about something, you know, having been a having had South African culture as a big part of my life, I totally understand that. But that's still a choice. I'm more concerned about the people who have to eat certain foods because they don't have choice, whether that's poverty or whether it's just tradition. Um, and so I've been asked about this before. Actually, I was I was in the UK, but I was working with a South African company and somebody said, you know, what about the fact that in Southern Africa, a lot of people eat corn based um, starch. What what can we do about that? And you know they may not have access to fish or seafood. And um, what the the way that I've managed to sort of reconcile that in my heart, because I, I you know it, it does seem unfair, is that we have adapted to get what we need out of the food that's available locally. You know we're moving back to eating local, seasonal, sustainable food. So I think if you're in in an area that's you know inland or there is just a lot of um, corn or wheat available, then somehow you'll be getting the nutrients that you need. But whatever you can do to expose yourself to better nutrients, obviously that's going to be better for you. Sure. And I think this is where partnerships and alliances where there are organizations who are specifically designed to provide foods can think differently because if they have the choice, then they can help communities have a choice as well. Absolutely. Awesome. So any further points, any other brain power foods before we move to hydration? Um, well, you know, I actually strongly believe that water. So the healthy fats and water are kind of what the brain is actually made of. So that's why it needs um, those sort of substances to keep sort of keep keep itself at um, peak health. And so, yeah, I'd like to actually move on to hydration, which I consider to be part of, of refueling yourself. Um, and, you know, the last time I was in South Africa, when I saw you, there was this just horrifying situation of not having enough water in parts of the country. And the things that people were doing to move water around the country was just so heartwarming. And I think 
I saw South Africa at its worst and South Africa at, at its best in the same day. Um, yes, yes. And as we know, we literally cannot live without water. Um, can't, can't live for very long. So water is very, very important for, for ourselves. Just as, just as you would think about, you know, I mean, you know, I was so upset when I heard that healthy cattle were being slaughtered because they couldn't, they wouldn't be able to give them enough water. Yes. Um, it's kind of the same for us. You know, we, we also can't function if we don't get enough water. So as a scientist, when I look at somebody and they look dehydrated, you know, and I can see the little fine lines on their face or they've got a really dry mouth or cracked lips, I kind of think I can see, it's almost like I can x-ray through your skull and see that the neurons in your brain, they can't send each other the chemical and electrical messages that they need to, to like, you know, pass information around pathways in your brain. And that's why I find it so frustrating when I have, you know, people who drink lots of coffee and then maybe have a few beers in the evening, but they, they can't drink enough water. I don't accept that. So um, I'm a big advocate of, of drinking enough water, especially if you do drink a lot of coffee or um, alcohol. I drink far too much coffee and not enough water, and I've seen the impact, and I've tried to figure out a way to incorporate by keeping bottles in my car, um, yeah. you know, and, and just making a conscious effort to get water at a restaurant. But I mm -hmm. still feel like I'm not getting enough. How much is enough? Um, you need to drink about half a liter for every 15 kilos of your body weight. So you should probably be drinking like two and a half, three liters a day. <laughs> <laughs> I've made a two and a half, three liters. Wow. Okay. How do you suppose and, and you I go about drink, doing you, that? You run, so you need to drink more. And if you drink coffee, you need to drink more. Okay, so let me tell you what happened to me today so that you can help advise people who are going through my lifestyle. So this morning I, I ran eight kilometers, mm -hmm. and I've had two espressos, and mm -hmm. I've had one glass of water. Oh, Timothy. <laughs> this is... I mean, Am I about to this, die? Is, this is where I get a bit directive, okay? So here's your example of when I said, uh, you know, this is why I say I'm a consultant, not a coach. If you exercise like that and you do not refuel properly with protein and rehydrate afterwards, you are damaging your body. Okay. Which part am I damaging? Well, the muscle repair that needs to happen after exercising like that, you're not giving it the resources that it needs to do that. Okay. And by being dehydrated... You're, you're, you're damaging your ability to use your brain properly. That explains a lot. You know, you know that's what the shortcut is. So basically, you've given yourself brain damage this morning, and then at your, at your sort of lowest level of thinking, you're like, oh, I don't feel so good. Let me have another coffee. Mm, Do you see what I, I mean? See. It's like a vicious circle. One of the things that I have been um, struggling with is I really enjoy sparkling water, what they call it here. I think it's called mm. for things in different parts of the world, but here it's called mm. sparkling water. Somehow I feel that there is a fundamental difference. If I drink two liters of sparkling water a day versus normal <laughs> still water, there, is there a difference? I can't find anything online. Help me. Yeah, there is. So the carbonation process lowers the pH of the water. So, you know, seven is neutral. If you start, start looking at the pH of all the water that you buy. Okay. Um, Carbonated water is always less than seven, so it's basically acidic, oh, um, wow. which is not very good for you, no. So um, it's not as hydrating as still water. You have to retrain your taste buds, Timothy. 
Is there any other hydration tip? Um, there's a, quite a new movement towards saying that you should actually be eating your water. So eating, you know, the lettuces, the fruits, the green leafy vegetables. You get water, a cucumber particularly. You get a lot of water from eating those. But I also think, um, you know, your skin is your largest organ. So being quite mindful about how much water you are potentially losing through your skin. So especially in South Africa, staying in the shade when you can, um, moisturizing your skin with, you know, even if it's with something very natural like olive oil, um, this it presents a bit of a more of a barrier to losing hydration, especially in hot countries. Um, but mostly this feeling when we wake up and we're a bit groggy and we think, oh, I need a coffee. The first thing to do is to drink a large glass of water and you won't feel groggy anymore. That's because you've been dehydrated overnight. Mm-hmm. So really making water your friend. And all I say to people is just try it. Just slowly increase your water intake over two weeks. I guarantee you will not go back because you will actually feel the difference. Wow. Appreciate that. The fourth tip is one that you're doing very well already and it, because it's exercise. Thank you. Finally, I'm doing something right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so cardiovascular exercise, um, it provides oxygen to our brain. It, it probably helps with um, fending off the aging process over time um, in terms of your cognitive ability. Um, but there's something really fascinating from the neuroscience about exercise, which isn't the usual, you know, do exercise, it's healthy. It matters very much from a brain point of view how much you enjoy the exercise that you're doing. So ideally, we would live like we did, you know, when we were cave people. We would move around for several hours during the day and maybe have some rest time. But we would be kind of walking around quite a lot during the day. So a lot of people now use wearable technology to make sure they're getting their 10,000 steps a day. But so many people are in sedentary office jobs where they just sit down all day and they're in meetings or, you know, they don't really move around. So... In that case, if you can't move around during the day, then going to the gym a few times a week before or after work makes, you know, makes up that difference as much as possible. But if you're dragging yourself to the gym, you know, to run on the treadmill or something just because you think it's good for you and you get your steps and you get a bit of oxygenation, think again. So in an experiment on rats where they showed the difference between voluntary and involuntary exercise, they showed that there were three groups of rats, one that were kept in a confined space, couldn't exercise, one that were forced to run on a treadmill for a certain number of minutes or hours per day, and the last group um, were allowed to walk around, do exercise when they wanted to for as long as they wanted to. So the two groups that did get aerobic exercise both got the benefits of oxygenation in the brain, but only the group that did exercise it wanted to released a growth factor in the brain called BDNF, or brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And neurotrophic means growth of neurons. So this is potentially about connecting up neurons that are already existing. So that can sometimes lead to creative thinking. It sounds like you get that when you exercise. Um, But even more than that, this is about growing these little baby neurons into new neurons. So you're actually growing your brain by doing this exercise. So I encourage people to find something that they really like, whether it's, you know, a team sport or whether it's a dance class, 
rather than just doing exercise for the sake of it. And, you know, I actually think that has implications for what work you choose to do, what activities you choose to do, because there does seem to be this differential in the brain between activities that you desire and activities that you feel forced to do. So for those people who getting on the treadmill is like an absolute pain and they hate it with everything in them, they are cutting off their BDNF. Yeah, you know, my feeling is that so you wouldn't be getting BDNF. You're getting some oxygen, obviously, because you're exerting yourself. But if it's that stressful, you have to wonder about how good it is for, for, your, for you mentally. Got it. So it's really important to try to find something that you enjoy. And that might mean experimenting with things that you wouldn't have necessarily tried, like a spin class or, you know, just whatever, whatever appeals to different people. Let me jump in real quick. I really hope you guys are enjoying this episode. For those of you who have heard our conversations before, you may hear some content that sounds familiar, but keep listening because Dr. Swart shares more insight and this could really help the content stick. And also, please make a note of at least three friends, family, colleagues who you think could use this content and share it with them. Now back to the show. Okay, so actually um, the next one is a sort of combination of two things. I put them together. So humor is very good for the brain. So I'm sure you have a laugh when you're playing basketball. Yeah. Um, we've laughed about you being an old man playing basketball. Yeah. <laughs> um, but really, you know, when we laugh together, we release this bonding hormone, oxytocin, and it just makes everybody feel warm and, you know, trusting, and that's a good thing. Okay. But what I really wanted to talk about here is the role of positive, meaningful social relationships which comes back to something I mentioned in part one of this podlet, which is about our need to belong. So, you know, we've always existed as tribes or clans or social groups, and being excluded from a group like that is very painful for us psychologically. So feeling like we're part of a group, you know, with family and friends, and that we have somebody we can confide in, we have people that we can share jokes with, people that, you know, could turn to us for advice so we feel needed as well. This is so important for our brains that, you know, they're they're almost saying now that loneliness is up there with smoking or or lack of exercise. Um, And actually this leads quite nicely on to the next point that I was going to make, which was about simplicity. Okay, wait, So So, before we move on to simplicity, let's deal with this, the value of humor for speakers. What has been your experience when you're speaking to an audience? Because essentially you're building a relationship with the audience. It's not just your ideas and the audience. It's they, you know, find something in you that they enjoy. And I've heard that speakers who present very complex subject matter, if they are more humorous, it's received easier and people remember uh, the content better. Have you found that to be the case or no? Um. I'm going to hesitate to answer this question because I I think that authenticity is really important, um, particularly with you know someone who's got my qualifications and you know, my sort of job title at MIT and everything. I think being competent in your knowledge is the most important thing. I feel like I'm lucky if if something funny crops up or you know I laugh together with the group, then then that's great. What I know that there, and going back to what you said about people who aren't qualified to speak or, you know, this reputation amongst coaches and motivational speakers, I think that if you're 
purposely setting out to say funny things, to me that doesn't ring true and I don't actually think that makes people bond with you. So I think the best humour is things that happen unplanned. Okay, got it. Um, I think being warm and engaging and something funny always happens. You know, I, I just think I, do, I certainly don't go out there intending to tell a joke. <laughs> <laughs> okay, awesome. Number six. Mm-hmm. Simplicity. Okay. So um, our brain does prefer simplicity, but we are living in an ever increasingly complex world. So we hardly ever get any time for simplicity. Um, you mentioned Barack Obama. Um, and I have heard that he does this choice reduction regime in the mornings to like to bring more simplicity into his morning routine. The reason for that is that when we wake up, even if it's after a good eight, good quality eight hour sleep, we have this bucket of brain resources that's going to get used up by every decision that we make during the day. Okay. So because Barack Obama has very big, important decisions to make by the time he gets to work, he doesn't want to use up his bucket too much in the morning. So he would wake up at the same time every day, no matter where he is in the world, same gym routine at the same time, same breakfast at the same time, and he chooses from a very narrow repertoire of clothing. I mean, this is the same reason that Mark Zuckerberg wears the same clothes every day. So he's not using up his brain resources on what should I wear. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Personally, I like to use up my brain resources on what should I wear. So that's one thing that I <laughs> <laughs> don't change. But, um, you know, it's one of the reasons that I've got the Habit Tracker app. You know, it just makes it simple. It's there. I just tick yes or no. And then I know if I've done these things. That's impressive. Um, that's impressive because, you know, if I think about, for example, you know, I've seen people's, they keep the same profile pictures um, up. And maybe that's why, you know, I've seen people who don't change things often. And maybe intuitively, as you said earlier, that we have this sort of knowledge in our gut that we're not even aware of. And, um, you know, I don't know. I'm sure you know people like, for example, keep their old profile picks up even if they're not <laughs> really So it makes a lot of sense. So thank you so much for that one as well. Okay. I can't believe you've used this opportunity to tease me in yes. public. Yes. Okay. Um, Okay, moving on. No, so basically, choice reduction is one thing that you can do to bring simplicity into your life. I suggest that people do this at stressful times, okay. that you actually, you purposely bring simplicity into your life at stressful times. Obviously, mindfulness techniques like meditation are also a way of giving your brain some simplicity. And I'm a big fan of the digital detox when I'm on vacation. So... Um, even my work email, the out of office will say, I'm on a digital detox. I won't read your email for two weeks, but I'll reply after that. Okay. Um, and people, they respect that now. You know, people, I think at first people thought it was a bit quirky, but um, people understand that that's connected to the science. And I think it kind of hopefully even makes people want to try it a little bit themselves. Um, and it is incredible how much time and space you have if you are not looking at emails, text messages, Facebook, Twitter, etc. Yes. A quick note here. Since the world has pretty much gone completely online, or if you have a job such as an influencer or a digital position of some sort, try to make sure you schedule your off-screen time. This is really important. Just be more intentional. Okay, let's dive back in. So the next one, it might seem a bit paradoxical because it's kind of the opposite of simplicity. 
And that's why I particularly said that you should bring simplicity into your routine when you've got a lot of change going and stress going on around you. This seventh and final tip is called cognitive challenge. So that means purposely learning new things or putting yourself in new and different situations where you have to work out how to kind of, you know, get through something. So it's a bit like solving a problem or thinking flexibly about. So, you know, I I include travel in that. I think traveling to different countries, hearing different languages, eating different food, that's all very stimulating for your brain. But the two best things you can do for your brain in adulthood to keep it plastic and flexible for as long as possible is learn a new language or learn a musical instrument. The people who grew up bilingual or multilingual have a bit of an advantage already in terms of the higher functions of the brain, like emotional regulation, solving complex problems, thinking flexibly and creatively. Um, But between the ages of 25 and 65, your brain is still very open to growing and changing and learning. And so to particularly decide, I'm going to learn a language that I, I didn't know before, or I'm going to pick up a musical instrument, gives your brain global benefits. So not just the benefit of knowing a language or being able to play an instrument, but other benefits in your brain as well, just like flexibility and plasticity. Things like crosswords and Sudoku probably aren't attention intense enough to really give you that effect. Um, And if you like doing crosswords, if you find them quite easy and you're good at them, then purposely do something that you don't actually find that easy because then you're building up new pathways in your brain. So it's about testing and challenging your brain to keep it plastic and flexible um, for as long as possible. Thank you so much, Dr. Swart. Thank you, Timothy. A huge thank you to Tara. I appreciate your vision and desire for everyone to live out their goals and dreams by understanding how their brain and nervous systems work at the highest levels. Please follow Tara. You can go to her website, taraswart.com, or follow her on Instagram at Tara Swart. Thanks for listening, and please share this with someone you care about. Until next time.